Hi, this is Alan Chartok, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with architect, artist, author, activist, and philanthropist Beverly Willis. Beverly began her prolific career in 1954 in Hawaii as a painter and multimedia artist. By 1958, when she moved to San Francisco, she expanded her repertoire to include industrial and architectural design architecture increasingly took over her work, and by 1966, Willis had obtained her architectural license and a decade later was running the 35-person firm Willis & Associates Incorporated. For Willis, architectural practice has always embraced multiple approaches, whether designing residential or civic structures, pioneering adaptive reuse to revitalize downtown commercial zones, or innovative technology-driven land use planning. Her most famous building is the San Francisco Ballet Building in the City Civic Center. In the 1970s, Willis complemented her architectural practice with professional organizational leadership, often holding positions never before held by a woman. Willis served as president of the California Council of American Institute of Architects, which governs 22 California chapters that include San Francisco and Los Angeles. Willis also held leadership roles in the national level, such as serving on the U.S. delegation to the United Nations Conference on Habitat One, as well as serving on the Executive Committee of the National Academy of Sciences Board of Infrastructure, Culture, and Constructed Environment, or chairing the Federal Facility Council. Willis, as a founding trustee of the National Building Museum in Washington, D.C., a position she still holds. In 2002, she founded the Beverly Willis Architecture Foundation. You can learn more about the foundation at bwaf.org and more about Beverly at beverlywillis.com. Welcome, Beverly Willis. Thank you, Alan. Good to be here. Well, you've done an awful lot in your very short life. How old are you now? I'm 88, 88. or almost. 88 is pretty good. So what year were it's you a great born? Year. What year were you born? Nineteen twenty-eight. Nineteen twenty-eight. So you were alive during World War II. Yes, uh, I was. So was I, but just barely. I was born in nineteen forty-one. Oh wow! So, so I tell my students all the time, <laughs> I was alive in World War II, and they look at you as if you are absolutely insane. Well, you've had a, a wonderful, wonderful life. And when we talk on our roundtable program, or we and we have feminists, you know, as regular participants in the program, there is always the question as to whether or not we've moved ahead when it comes to women. Have we? Well, we have moved ahead. It's not where it should be by a long shot. But yes, when I started out in architecture, for example. Only 1% of the architects were women, and now it's 18%. You know, and that's far too low of a figure. We're, we'd like to see it more like 30 40%, particularly when girls at the university and architectural school uh, really exceed the number of men, and they, they're doing better work, they're making better grades. So, you know, the profession should be very open and welcoming to them. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. So, Beverly Wills, what holds them back? If there are more there, obviously, is there a glass ceiling, or is it that they want to have children, or what? It's basically the culture, and the culture in architecture and building goes back hundreds of years. It's one of the oldest professions in the world, and it's been all these centuries, you know, totally a male-dominated profession. Women emerged in the mid-1800s, and so it's, you know, very slowly breaking down traditions or just practices that have been deeply rooted in the profession. So we've made progress. And one of the reasons I founded the Beverly Wells Architecture Foundation is to try to get women in the historical narrative. I mean, obviously, if you're in high school or you're in college and you're being taught architectural history, there's no mention of women. I mean, I think in the history books right now, there are two women, Jane Jacobs and Rachel Carson, and I think until, you know, the profession recognizes that the work of women is worth, you know, being in the history book, so to speak, and 
And in terms of the practice, it certainly is work. Uh, there's been some outstanding work done by women. For example, women designed and built the first solar house, for example. Certainly that's a historical landmark. So I think that once the history books begin to be open to women in architecture, we'll still have a slow time breaking down the culture. So give us some war stories. Certainly in the back of your mind is, you know, some insult that has been offered to you, you know, from the very beginning when you had to fight your way in. In my case, in my junior high school, Mrs. Blofeld was really rotten to me. Didn't want me to, to see me achieve. So do you have any such stories? Well, you know, interestingly enough for me, when I emerged into architecture, I had a difficult time getting the state of California to give me permission to take the licensing exam. Really? Yes, because I had never worked within an architectural office. I'd hired architects. I'd worked with architects, but I had never worked in an architectural office. So there were two little words, you know, one was for and one was with. <laughs> and it was on the basis of that I hadn't worked for that I was being denied the right to take the examination. So how'd you um, deal with that? Well... I knew Dan Inouye, who was one of the two first senators from Hawaii, and I actually had drawn the plans for his house in Washington, D.C., and I was in his office one day in Washington, D.C., and he said, how are things going? And I said, they're going all right, except I'm having a little problem with the state of California getting them to approve my license application. And he laughed, and he said, why didn't you talk to me sooner? And I said, well, I... What can you do about it? And he said, watch me. So I got the governor in California on the telephone. That was Pat Brown, Jerry Brown's father, sure. and had this conversation with him and sort of pitched him what I had pitched him, which was, look, what's the big deal? If I'm not capable of passing the examination, I'll fail. So everybody, you know, so that's the end of it. I mean, wh why deny the permission for taking the exam? And the governor accepted that. And Three days later, I got my permission to take the examination. So that's one worse story. Give me another one. In my early days, unlike women that came later in the 70s, because I entered into the design field in the 50s, the very few women, which you know were practically none, were more accepted. They were more like fun. I mean, it was so unusual. So the men sort of accepted it as sort of a, an interesting phenomenon. I mean, they weren't opposed to it. But by the time the 70s came around, when so many women graduated from architectural school, the men then began to have problems with women coming into the field. And those women really had a very difficult time. For me, of course, by that time, I had a very well-known practice in the 70s. So my dilemma was that the firms that would compete with my firms for projects would use the fact that I was a woman and say, well, a woman can't design, you know that. I mean, you know, you don't want to hire a woman architect. Hire me, you know, I'm a man and I can really do a good job for you. So that was difficult, that was difficult. And then some of the big institutions that would ask me to make a submittal for their work, I found out later were really using me to meet their requirements, that they have a woman involved in the interview, or the sh what we call sure. the shortlist interview. Uh, and But I had no chance of getting the work. But every time I made that type of presentation, it cost me $10,000, which is still a lot of money, but it was a lot of money back then. Sure. So I finally just dropped out from you know, pursuing that type of work. So these are sort of war stories, but we're, we're now facing young women coming along. For example, there's a big question as we speak right now whether feminists should be supporting Hillary Clinton because she's a woman. Yeah, and you have Gloria Steinem and Madeleine Albright coming out and saying, you know, there's a place in hell for, for people <laughs> who, don't, who don't do that. But the younger kids, the post-feminists, are saying, no, no, we don't make our decisions based on anatomy. We want to know what the philosophy is. What do you make of all of that? Well, the experience that we've had with the, at the foundation level is that the young women graduating don't understand that the culture still hasn't changed, that they're going to run into the roadblocks that older women faced, but they just don't get it. And it's only after they've been in the practice for several years do they really begin to understand 
that, you know, they've got a tough road to hoe, you know, going forward. And unless we women stick together, it's very difficult for us to make progress because the issues that we face in architecture are common in the broadcasting industry. They're common in, in the movie industry. They're common in other industries as well in art. So, you know, we don't know the solution for making the young women aware of what they're facing after graduation. We've discussed, you know, trying to have some educational programs after they've graduated. But I do think from what I've read in the newspapers that both Gloria Steinem and Madeleine Albright are being a little rough, I mean, in a sense. Like I read they were saying, like, grow up. Well, what do you think, though? I mean, look, Beverly Willis, you are somebody who is a groundbreaker. You did what nobody else had done. We've heard that story already. You convinced the governor of California that you should be allowed to have a license. You've dealt with sexism, misogyny. You've dealt with all of those issues. So now you have a chance to have a woman president of the United States. Beverly Willis, how important is that? I think it's incredibly important. I really do. And to be perfectly honest, I'm a great Hillary supporter. But I'm also in that age group that the polls say are supporting Hillary. You know, I I think that in terms of all the candidates, both on the Republican and Democratic side, that she's the most experienced, she's the most knowledgeable, and I think she can do a better job. So, yes, I certainly urge women to stand behind Hillary. So I guess I don't want to fight this out with you, but what if it turns out that some women are convinced that Hillary is part of the problem, that she's establishment? And Beverly Willis, I know you're going to probably throw something at me for this, (laughs) but you've been immensely successful dealing within the establishment, getting these contracts. You had to fight like hell for them, but now you're there. And is that a risk that somebody takes with getting somebody who gives $100,000 speeches to banks? Well, you know, I think Even yourself, I mean, you said so on the radio earlier today about the fact that 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 money plays a major role, you know, in government decisions. Yeah. And I think a person like Hillary, you know, who knows these people is better equipped to deal with them Mm. and back them off because somebody has to have the guts, you know, to do that. And I don't think that somebody who comes along who doesn't try to negotiate with the big money is going to be that successful because they're incredibly powerful. And, of course, I think that's a problem for the whole country. I mean, I I don't think it's just a Hillary problem because this gap that we're facing since 2008 between the billionaire class and the middle class is a huge problem for the country. Now, you posit, and I love talking to you about this, and I hope that you won't throw anything at me, but what if it turns out, because I've been around politicians, I'm not your age, but I'm getting there fast. (laughs) I'm 74, and I've spent enormous amounts of time in both the Congress, around the state legislatures, and I worked for the Eagleton Institute of Politics, which went around to look at these state legislatures, and I think the state of our public people is not good that they know, and somebody gives them a lot of money, and they know there's an implicit deal. Now, if I sit sitting across here and say, Beverly, if you do this, will you do that? And I'm a legislator. Somebody's going to go to jail if we say it into a microphone. But in fact, if Hillary gets $100,000 or $600,000 for a speech to Goldman Sachs or whatever, there's certainly an honor among people that, you know, somebody's owed something, don't you think? I think that it can be negotiated. I, like you, have watched Congress operate over quite a number of years. When we created the National Building Museum, we started in 1975. We got two bills through Congress by 1980. And it's such a crazy thing sometimes. The thing that was blocking us from creating the National Building Museum was that the head of the Smithsonian had taken birds home and built this big bird collection in his house that belonged to the Smithsonian. And and then he turned around and created the Cooper Hewitt Museum in New York out of petty cash. And Congress was furious. So we had to pay part of that price for an action that was totally unconnected with what we're trying to do. So it's really a challenge. And I think Hillary keeps referring to this. I'm not sure people understand it, but it's really a challenge you know, to keep a balance, to get something implemented, you know, to get it through this morass of personal issues. 
Yeah, but there's, uh, there are people, Beverly Willis, who are either corrupt, semi-corrupt, but who say, okay, if I want the money, I got to produce on some level for these people. I don't want to beat this horse to death, but it's one of the problems we have. I hear you, but I don't think that at the end of the day, that big money has 100% of its way. I agree with you. you know, Not I, 100%, I, but maybe yeah. 80%. Uh, they they have a lot. Okay, but even fifty. Okay, let me uh, change the subject for a moment because it's something I always love to do in these conversations. You're eighty-eight years old. Remind us of who your parents were. Well, I was a child of the depression, and I was one of the depression orphans. Meaning and what? Meaning what? My parents put me in an orphan reach really? at the age of six, and my parents were divorced when I was six, and the orphanage placement came after the divorce. And what was that like? Well, it motivated me. Do you remember it? Oh, I remember it very well. Very, very well. And it was in Oklahoma. I was born in Oklahoma. But it instilled in me, you know, a drive to get out. And all of my young years and going into my 20s and 30s, all I wanted to do was to be free from people telling me what to do. I just really didn't like being bossed around all the time. Can you remind us a little bit or remember a little bit about what that orphanage was like? Well, for me, it was a little bit like a jail. It didn't have bars on the window, but, you know, one of the things I remember from those days so well, I had asthma as a child. I had asthma until I outgrew it when I was 18. And because I was coughing so, I was put in this room that was absolutely bare room and just a single light, like a cell almost, you know, left alone to cough. And I remember that very well. So you were there till how old? Till I was 12. And then what happened? I ran away. Tell yeah. us about that. <laughs> Did you have to get out in the middle of the night with a sheet? or? Well, no, I by this point, I was living with my mother. My mother had taken me out of the institution, and I call them institutions. I, did, she have, the proper, did she have a job? Your mom? Oh, yes. My mother was a nurse. She had a job, right. Okay. But it was, you know, again, thinking about today. I mean, if you don't make enough money to support sure. your family, it doesn't make any difference if you're working. Did you have siblings? I had one brother, uh-huh. And was he in the orphanage, too? And yes. He, yeah. And did she take him back, too? Yes. Uh-huh. And so now you're 12, you're with your mom. And, uh, and I was having trouble because she was trying to tell me what to do. Uh-huh. So that motivated my running away. But in the meantime, I had become a member of a women's softball team that was a traveling team, and we were playing softball games in Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas. A league of their own. A league of their own type of thing, yeah, except the league of their own was hardball. Yeah, of course. And I was in the softball league. And so, you know, I'd met older women then being, for me, like 18 <laughs> but in other states. So I ran away to Wichita Falls, Kansas. Because I like the city and I like the people there. But three weeks later, the police came knocking on the door and said, Hey, kid, you can't do that. You got to go back home. And you ran away, not from the orphanage, but from your mom. Well, I went back and I talked to my mother. I said, Look, I won't run away again as long as you let me make my own decisions. Uh And she said, Okay. And so everything was peaceful after that. Freud tells us that character is established by the time you're four years old, I believe. And so character is character. And there's something about your character, obviously, that has led you all the way here to be one of the most famous architects in the country, to have accomplished all of this stuff. So what is it that gave you the moxie to do all of this? No, I I do think perhaps you're born with a certain amount of character, if that's the right word. And I think Freud was correct because I observed so many people who are afraid. And I've never been afraid. And so I've been able to dare to do things. And, and I've not been afraid to do things that nobody else has done before. And I've done several things in my career that people have never done before. And it's always worked out very well. And I've often asked myself, where does that come from? You know, when, you know, I've been working now for the last 13 years, you know, trying to help others, you know, forge ahead. And some do and some don't. And I just wish that everybody, you know, had this sort of belief in themselves that they could do anything they wanted to do. Because I believe people can. I believe that if you believe in yourself, you can do anything you want to do. And yet, you go to an orphanage at a very young age. You have parents who split. 
you were treated badly in the orphanage, at least that's what I'm hearing. Well, I, yes. <laughs> the perspective of a young person, sure. yes. And yet, you had your character. So again, where does that come from? We don't know. No, I have no idea. Interesting, no. interesting. So are you wealthy? Do you have a lot of money? I am well off. Uh, uh, I'm less well off since 2008. So uh, you're not in the Donald Trump league? Oh, no, 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 no. A very modest, modest sum right. of money that I've been able to live off on. Right. Live on for the last number of years. You're in a book. I want to talk to you about that book. What is it? Well, it's the Princeton Architectural Press is coming out with a book. I think the publication date is May, and it's called 20 Over 80, People Who've Been Active Into Their 80s, and it's subtitled Conversations with the Legends of Design and Architecture. Wow. And you're one of them. And I'm one of them. And what they ask you? Just, you know, sort of general questions about uh, my career. They did a lot of research, obviously, before even contacting me, mm. and they did a timeline of all the things I've accomplished. So what's the difference between a man and a woman when they design something? Is none. there anything? There's none. None, none. There is a difference, however, in the approach, I think. I've come to believe that because the studies show that the male mind and the female mind operate a bit differently, and the male mind tends to be you know, very focused on the objective, very focused on a solution, and goes directly there as much as possible. The female mind tends to sort of bounce around a bit, look at a whole range of conditions, and then goes directly to the solution. So you, you may say that the uh, woman's solution to the design may be more comprehensive in a way, but you know, at the end of the day, I think the resulting design itself, there's no difference. Yeah. So tell us about the foundation and what you're trying to do with it. Basically, we're trying to change the culture within design and construction through research and education. Example? Well, we have a, an awards program, which we've recently started, where we recognize major male contributors to, you know, helping women change the culture. That's interesting. As well as recognizing women who've been pioneers in changing the culture. So through this, we hope to get the press. We hope to bring more people aboard because we're recognizing people who set the sort of examples that we believe are worthwhile. And I might really say at this point is that the architecture and engineering professions, which we represent through the foundation, are in the midst of vast change because as the world has gone global, as major corporations have gone global, so have architecture and engineering gone global. So you have firms now that have anywhere from five to 50,000 people, and in some cases more people working for them all over the world. So that you've got really a massive corporate structure producing architecture and engineering. And that is totally different than when I started. When I started, the architect just hung out a shingle. You had one assistant, two assistants. You know, you did your own work, you did your own drawings, and that was it. But that's very rare nowadays. It still exists, and it still exists, you know, particularly in, in smaller towns and cities, you know, across the country. But in, in major cities, global cities, uh, where these firms are headquartered, it's a totally different approach and, and a totally different environment for both men and women. Mm -hmm. Are there superstars, besides yourself, are there superstars of the IMP variety among women? Well, yes, you know, actually uh, there are. There's Jeannie Gang out of Chicago, and she's done, she did this fantastic uh, high-rise building called the Aqua Towers in downtown Chicago, which you know, has had a big impact on architecture. Also, Elizabeth Diller of Diller Scafidio uh, has done a lot of work in New York City. Uh, uh, she's been responsible for redoing the work at the Metropolitan Opera, the sort of Metropolitan sure. Performing Center there, as well as other major projects. So, so you know, um, I spend a lot of time in New York these days, and I look up at the skyline. I have a friend who has a 
apartment with a roof garden on it, and I look out and I see big, tall buildings. And, you know, a tribute to Michael Bloomberg, who decided this. I'm wondering what you think of the metamorphosis of the city. We know that there's a big crisis in middle-class housing, that there isn't enough, that people don't know where to go. And I think Michael Bloomberg, who I'm a big fan of, um, just let all constraints go, and anything goes right now. Well, the phenomena is that the move to suburbs has been reversed, and Indeed. now it's the move back to the city. And, and for the city to accommodate increased populations, you have to go up. There's just not land to spread out. That was the reason people went to the suburbs in the first place was because there was land and you could build a house. Sure, Yonkers was that. primeval forest. Yeah, right, right, exactly, exactly. So the advantage of, of the high-rise development is that within a block or two, you have a complete neighborhood with complete services. Indeed, you know, in a building or two, as I keep pointing out to my wife, they got more residents than all of the Berkshires. Exactly, exactly. So you have the grocery store, you have the drug store, you, you know, you have the shoe repair, you have the pet hospital, you know, you have a post office. You have all the services, you know, of a small town, you know, literally within the block or within two blocks of where your building is. So that you have all these services. You can call in and order food very easily. Indeed. You can get killed by a bicycle delivery man, too. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, statistics show that New York City has fewer crimes per capita right. than it's like. I didn't mean crime. Years. I just meant somebody yeah, running not... you down. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so, okay. So, when you live in the Berkshires, right? Yes. And you live in Williamstown? Yes. I share a house in Williamstown with my friend Wanda Brubisky. Yes. Fantastic. What do you think of that town? Williamstown is a town, I think, is a very, very lovely town. It's almost New England picture-perfect town, not like Stockbridge, where I lived for a long time. As you remember, I shared I a house do, with I, March I Champion. And, I, I do. But, you know, it is a lovely town, and it's, it's also— It's a little antiseptic, though, isn't it? Well, it's increasingly antiseptic as Williams College takes over more and more land, and— and builds more and more buildings. That's not going to get reversed, is it? Because they're no. very good at raising money, and when somebody gives you money, it's almost always to build something. Yeah. They're very wealthy, I think. That's, yes. That's, and it's not unlike the situation in New York City, for example. You know, New York City has a ton of universities, you know, within its boundaries, and they, too, are growing and enlarging and building buildings and infringing. Indeed. You know, on the I went to NYU, you know, and it owns an awful lot of neighborhood that used right, to exist. Right. And Columbia and Mount Sinai on the other side, you know, oh. huge swaths and corridors. Well, University of Columbia has taken over many, many, many blocks of land, and they have a huge building program going on. And this, I think, is, is, is partly a result of you know, of their ability to bring in money. and uh, Absolutely. it is. Yeah. I don't think there's any question. Bev Willis, you're, you're exactly right because people are building, people want something with their name on it and they're willing to give you, you know, money to do it. But that doesn't make it right. Yeah. Well, it also creates certain problems. Uh, 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 the house that I share is now literally adjacent to the campus. And that wasn't that way originally sure. when... The house was either built in 1880 or as long as the Brubisky family has had it. But that's the case now. And, and, the, uh, and so you, you, you're living with the students, you know, as well as, you know, university expansion. Yeah, uh, but there's a big difference between living with students in Williamstown and living with students, you know, in the inner city in Albany. Well, I don't know about the inner city in Albany. That, that I don't know about. But I can tell you this, is that last year, the house that I live in was broken into by a person who did over $150,000 worth of damage. No. They broke over 130 pieces of furniture and artifacts. To what end? They tried to burn the house down in eight places. Why? We don't know. We don't know. Did All they catch them? Yeah, the police has arrested a tough student, tough college student, by the name of Peter Lee Kramer, on the charge of attempted arson, and uh, and his father is the global vice president of Johnson and Johnson, uh, and he's a star soccer player, 
at Tufts, and he was visiting the soccer players at, you know, at Williams College. And he happened to be at a, he happened to be on the street uh, at the time I, this occurred. That's all we know. Well, that's quite something. But of course, we can't extrapolate that to every student, you know. Who well, I, I hope not. It just, it, it, it just. Were you in the, shock uh, when you saw it? Oh, it, it was unbelievable. Yeah. So it's a pure little town. It doesn't doesn't have what I would consider to be great character. You know, I mean, Great Barrington, where I live, yes, has down the road, you know, middle class, upper class, lower class. It has, it has a tremendous mix. It's got 75 restaurants, you know, people coming up there and, and staying there, big building program. That ain't happening in Williamstown. Oh, well, that's quite true, and Great Barrington is a very vibrant place. But it also, as I recall, has about 30,000 people. Well, and, in the summer. Yeah, in the and summer. And 7,000 or so in the winter. Oh, really? Right. Well, it's not oh, that much. Oh, that's amazing. But I, I believe we that. have something like 14 cops for yeah. 7,000 people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot yeah, of cops. That's yeah, that's a lot. No, Williamstown is more like 7,000, including 2,000 students right. at Williams College, or approximate figures. Uh, but that's amazing because, yeah, you're quite right. Williamstown doesn't have the same vibrancy as Great Barrington. Well, I got into a lot of trouble, uh, Beverly, <laughs> because I, one day, I, you know, I write a Saturday column for the Berkshire Eagle, and I, I, of course, had nothing to write. We columnists have to confess it. If you have nothing to write, you make something up. <laughs> so I decided I, I would compare all of the towns in Berkshire County and give a line or two about them, and people didn't like it. Um, there were a lot of people who didn't like it. And one of the things I said was that Stockbridge reminded me of one of those old Western sets where you <laughs> saw the front of the buildings, but there was nothing behind them. Uh, you know, and people got got mad at me, you know, for that. I can't understand why. And so, you know, there's a there's a sort of a category that we put into each of these places. I had a, a visitor recently who came in and told me that he had a plan to bring middle-class and lower-middle-class housing to Williamstown. I'm sitting there looking at the guy and say, that ain't going to happen. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, yeah, well, he has a plan, and good luck to Charlie, you know, to do all of that. So you have been an activist all of your life. As an architect, you have to have a philosophy of what you want to see and what you don't want to see, right? Right. And what do you want to see in Williamstown? I think the issue for uh, New England towns is jobs. And I know that the best minds have been working on that issue. And if you can get jobs more than, say, like in Williamstown, uh, th there's really one major employer, and that's Williams College. But where you can get two major employers or three, you don't have one dominating the town sure. like Williams College does. Mm -hmm. In Williamstown. But um, if you take a look but, at Schenectady, New York, Bev Willis, I'm sorry for interrupting, and you take a look at Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which is a mess, you know, you see that when that one extra full-time employer like GE decides to leave, you've got devastation left there. Yes, yes. And that's true, you know, all over New England. I mean, it's, it's, sure. it is true. And, and I don't know, I've often thought that perhaps, you know, uh, again, this goes back to education, and it disturbs me greatly. Congress's approach to not funding education or not dealing with the education issues because it underlies knowledge, underlies everything we do. And, you know, I think with the right knowledge, uh, you know, people can do so much through the Internet. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have a global market there. Well, for the right knowledge, you, you, you probably wouldn't have elected Donald Trump to anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. The election in New Hampshire was truly amazing. Right, 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 right. Well, you've, you know, you're, you're in your 80s. Um, I'm in my 70s. We've seen them come and go. Uh, we have seen people come and go. But we did see in Germany the rise of Hitler. Yes. And what did he do? He said, well, the Jews are bad people. We've got to get rid of the Jews. And a lot of Jews died. My relatives and others died, died as a result of this terrible thing. Now we see Trump coming along and saying, don't, you know, don't admit the Muslims till we can be absolutely sure that every one of them, you know, is safe to have in this country. And it's horrifying to me because I go back to Nazi Germany. And I've been severely criticized for saying this. But, you know, I think once you get a certain group and you put the finger on them and say these are bad people and you get a lot of votes by people who will go along with it, the Jews in, in Nazi Germany, the Muslims now, you got a bad situation. 
No, I agree with you, and I, I obviously don't agree with Trump's approach and and the things that he's been saying. Uh, but he has, I think, done one service to the country, which is to make the political establishment aware of the anger of the American people because of this big gap in, in terms of income and in, and jobs. Uh, because you're, you're employed, but you're making less money than you made in Well, I think that's more true about Bernie Sanders than it is about Trump. No, I, yeah. I just sort of saying, you know, to the, the politicians, because I think that with the politicians themselves, that they never really realized, you know, what was happening, you know, on the ground. They, they seem to be in another world. Uh, well, no, because they're very comfortable. We've seen it again and again. I interviewed Preet Bharara, who was the guy who indicted the two leaders of the two houses that got convictions. And there's no question that he's looking at all the comfort levels that occurs when you get these self-serving politicians in office who never, ever think that anything's going to happen to them, and they just keep pushing the envelope a little bit more, a little bit more, and a little bit more. Awful. Awful. Good answer. <laughs> Good answer. So tell me about Hawaii a little bit. You spent time in Hawaii. What's yes, that like? Yes, I did. Well, it's a tropical island, and I used to say when people asked me what I majored in, that I majored in surfing, and I did learn to did surf <laughs> when I was in college. You know, I love the islands. I still have good friends there, and I go back occasionally, and I love hanging out at the Outrigger Canoe Club and on the beach, and and it's 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 wonderful. I miss the sunshine. I miss the me too. Warm water. <laughs> but, you know, like you, I'm committed to the Northeast. <laughs> Were you amazed when you saw Barack Obama, the first African-American president of the United States, get elected? Well, you know, I think during the election, as I recall, there wasn't much discussion about him being African-American. I mean, it was left out, carefully left out of the conversation. And I know my own personal feelings because, you know, obviously I voted for him, but my own personal feelings did not. I, I really thought of him more as a white man. And it was only after he was elected that there seemed to be a push in the press to refer to him as an African-American. Uh, but I think I thought of him being more white than, than black, so to speak, because, you know, he was raised by a white mother. He was raised by a white family. You know, his entire background until he got to be at a point where he wanted to know something about his father and went to Africa to find out about his father, you know, was based upon a, a Caucasian culture. And during my lifetime, there has been uh, a cultural change, a substantial cultural change uh, between races. And, uh, you know, now in New York City, as you know, there's uh, like 148 different ethnicities uh, and I remember in Hawaii, when I was in Hawaii, only about 30% of the population was Caucasian. And we were referred to as Halleys. And now, of course, Halleys predominate, you know, in Hawaii. But I remember, because my friends were all, you know, mixed race, you know, friends, because that's who I went to school with. And Punahou, of course, was a private high school where uh, Barack Obama, you know, went to school with. And you know, again, that school was, you know, more Halley than it was, you know, mixed race. So, you know, I've always really felt very comfortable uh, with mixed races, and I know other people don't necessarily feel that way. Well, yet, uh, Bev Willis, and I want to remind everybody, we've been talking today with architect, artist, author, activist, and philanthropist Beverly Willis, a great lady. Um, let me let me uh, say that... Um, you get places like Ferguson and some other places, people aren't getting along too well, and there does seem to be an exacerbated problem between the races that may not exist in other places. It seems to me, you know, because obviously I've given it thought, that it is sort of a cultural thing. I, I, I think in many places uh, uh, white people have not grown yet comfortable with... Uh, mixed races, and I, I think that influences subconsciously their actions, and, you know, listening to the uh, the police who've shot young black men, for example. Yeah, I wanted to talk you know, about if I could interrupt for one second, because you're an architect, and police now go in the housing projects on something called vertical patrol, 
which means they walk upstairs and we have a guy on trial for his life uh, right now, a policeman, who shot somebody in the stairwell without really knowing who it was. No. You know, but that's directly related. The architecture of these of these housing projects is directly related to, quote, vertical patrol. I wonder if you think about that at all. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough one because th there are people in those houses or housing uh, that deserve protection uh, because— Indeed. And—, and it's the same thing, you know, where we've learned because, uh, you know, I've done some design of education facilities where if you have a blank corridor, that's where a girl student could get raped by a male student because it's just away from other eyes. It's not on the street. So it, it, it's a real tough one. I, I really don't know the answer to that because I do believe that the good people who live in these housing projects you know, do need the protection. Mm -hmm. And I know I personally have had the problem having guns pointed at me. We had one project uh, called the Frederick Douglass Plaza Project in San Francisco, whereby uh, the labor unions were really upset with having any uh, people of color paint. And, and, and they were, in fact, shooting people. So... I got this call one day, and because the owner of the project, the manager of the project, were not available, and they sort of said, you got to come here. We have a man with a gun ready to shoot a man of color who's painting the front of the building. So I went down to see what I could do. Well, of course, I then had the gun pointed at me, uh, and I had to talk the man down from shooting me, <laughs> yeah, as well as shooting the man of color. So... And that was a require the, the the requirement for having mixed races on the construction crew was a federal government requirement for the financing for the project. Sure. So, the the developer had to hire, you know, uh, a percentage of mixed races. So, and I so I don't know the answer to that question either. There there's just uh, a, again, to some degree. It's cultural, and some degree it's education, and some degree, you know, it's jobs. Let's talk, Beverly Willis, about age a little bit. When Marge Champion, who you referred to before as sharing a house with you at, at one point, Marge of Marge and Gower Champion, two superstars of their time, um, first walked into this building, and I've been here for a long time, since 1979, I've been here, or at the radio station, which was not always in this building, but there were 50, 55-year-old women who almost fainted when they learned it was, was Marge Champion. Yeah. But no more. Uh, you know, she's living out with her son in California now. Correct. She's a wonderful woman, and I love her. But when I mention her to people, when I mention my all-time icon, Pete Seeger, to people, mm -hmm. they don't always know who they are. Correct. And that bothers me a great deal because, uh, you know, and maybe it shouldn't. But, you know, these are people who made massive contributions to our culture, to our understanding. She was one of the great dancers of all times uh, with her husband and then alone. And, you know, she was terrific. Um, so so uh, what do you make of the fact that as we get older, we get forgotten? Well, this is why history is important, because the only way that a person is remembered in our culture is through history. So the, the people who've made major contributions in their field, you know, at great cost sometimes, uh, you know, should be, you know, their, their memories should be preserved in history and, and typically is preserved in history, is usually preserved in history, except history has a way of editing it. Yeah. And it's the editing issue that's the issue for me. Well, look... Your contributions have been massive. And, and probably won't be remembered. And, well, I'm going to ask you about that. I mean, you know, uh, if you write a book, if you write an important book, the book is around forever. But if you, you're a professor who talks to kids who has never uh, had a book, you're forgotten. Uh, and um, there is this sort of thing about how do, how do we memorialize people? Do you ever think about your own role that way? 
Yes, as a matter of fact, you know, I have, as well as, you know, other women who pioneered, uh, uh, you know, over the last 150 years. Uh, and, you know, and you're right. It, it takes a book because for some reason a book will live on. But most recently, Julia Morgan uh, the, received the American Institute of Architects Gold Medal. I had the honor of accepting it on her behalf, but she's been dead many years, uh, yeah, some 56 years. So. Wow. And, and so it was a long time in coming. But after she died, for 17 years she was totally forgotten until a woman who I know uh, spent $30,000 of her own money and the last 20 years of her life putting together a book on Julia Morgan. And it was really this book that really kept the memory alive. And since then, about a half dozen other books have been written on Julia Morgan. And 56 years later, she receives the gold medal of the first woman ever in history to receive an American Institute of Architect gold medal. So are our values shifting? In this case, certainly. You know, here's a woman who was ignored, and now somebody writes a book about her, and then we have this, we have this medal being given to her. But it seems to me that that may not be really fair. You know what I mean by fair? You know, it's just, it seems to me that it may be trendy, but maybe not what was right. Well, that's a tough one, Alan. That's really very tough. I mean, you know, we can count on the presidents of the United States being included in history. Sure. I think that's pretty much a given. But who who actually is is up for grabs, I think. Sure. Walk out in front of the Capitol here in New York State and ask who the lieutenant governor is to this day, and no one will know. <laughs> it's amazing. Just yeah. just amazing. So what do you want to be known for? You know, I, I do want to be known for my design accomplishments. I, I Okay, so what was your been... greatest design accomplishment? Well, my greatest design accomplishment was the San Francisco Ballet Building in San Francisco Civic Center. And it was the first building ever designed and built exclusively for a ballet company in, in the history of the United States. And it has been sort of the mother building, so to speak, of other new ballet buildings that have been built around the country. And uh, uh, a friend of mine who is doing a book uh, on ballet buildings has traveled around the country and visited the new ballet buildings built after the San Francisco Ballet Building, and she has told me that there's something of the ballet building in all the new buildings. And I'm, you know, that, that just thrills me. Is your name on a plaque on that building? It's on a, not a plaque, but it, it's, it is on, it is mentioned. It can be replaced very easily. But. Do you ever go back? Yes, building? I have been back, yes. Do you ever take some young person walking by and say, hey, that's me? Oh, they know not. Architects actually get very little post-credit for a building, very little post-credit. Uh, you can ask almost anybody about who's the architect for any building, and they'll say, you know. No idea. No idea. No idea. Wow. What else would you like to be remembered for besides the, the San Francisco belly? Well, you know, I, I, I do think that it would be nice to, you know, to be remembered, I suppose, for uh, my contributions for uh, changing the culture of architecture. And uh, it's not going to happen during my lifetime, a change, a complete change. But I do think that I've had a role in starting the change and in, in getting the ball rolling, so to speak. And I'd like to be remembered for that. So the question I get a lot here at WAMC is, okay, you're the head guy. Um, who comes after you? How do you answer that? Well, I've put a lot of time in those last two years uh, to uh, bring people along. You know, I've stepped down from heading up the Beverly Wills Architecture Foundation. Uh, we have a new leadership, a new executive committee, a new director, and, and they're taking charge. And I'm very pleased and very proud of that because I really believe that the effort won't be sustainable you know, unless a whole new group of people come in and take over. What if they do something you don't like? 
Too bad. <laughs> Does that happen? Does that ever happen? Do you say, oh, boy. Well, no two it. people do the same thing alike, you know. I right. mean, who's going to follow in your shoes, Alan? I There'll mean, be somebody. Do? Well, somebody I, will, but they won't be Alan Charcot. Well, yes, but my friend Judy Grunberg, who's our, our board member, when somebody asks her that, and, you know, always basically says, well, we'll find somebody else. And, by the way, Mickey Mantle said that also. <laughs> they said, what will happen, Mickey, when you're dead? And he said, they'll find somebody else. That's right. That's <laughs> and, right. And, and they will. I mean, people, people will. But do you believe that we have an ageist culture in which people who are of an advanced age are sometimes counted out? You know, I, I thought so until I got to be of an advanced age. And I have been particularly delighted that uh, I've seen none of that. But I'm just speaking personally now. Sure. I, I really don't know. Uh, when you do get to be my age, you know, clearly uh, some people do have uh, memory problems. Uh, uh, some people have, you know, health problems. And, uh, you know, and I've been very fortunate. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've been in conversation today with architect, artist, author, activist, and philanthropist Beverly Willis. Beverly Willis, thank you so much for joining us. I found this to be a fascinating hour. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Alan. It's been a great pleasure for me. been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.